Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from Hebrews verses uh, 13 to 20, and you can find it on page 1004 in the Bible that is in the pew rack in front of you, or it will be on the screen behind me. Um, Please stand as we read God's word. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is God's word. I encourage you to find your way back to Hebrews chapter 6. And let's pray together as we look at God's word. Oh, gracious Father, We have been singing your praise, we have been casting our hope and our prayers up to your throne. We pray, Lord, we would hear your voice from your throne as we look into your word. And God, we need your help to be able to hear you. Not just to hear audibly, but spiritually to hear what you have to say to us. And so, would your spirit be with us? to open our eyes and to open our hearts to see and hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you consider yourself a smart shopper, you know, someone always going after the deal, making sure you're spending your money in the best way, one of the factors that you might consider when weighing certain products that you're thinking about purchasing is whether or not they come with a guarantee. About a week ago, uh, Friday night, I discovered that our water heater had a small leak in it. Went down and, you know, there's the puddle and everything. And, uh, of course, what do you do when you discover a leak in your water heater? I called Rob Stanley. And, uh, Rob sprang into action. He knew exactly what to do. And not only did he know how to, how to fix it, he did his research and he discovered that the water heater in our basement was still under warranty. That was good news. The manufacturer, the manufacturer had promised that this water heater would last a certain number of years and they backed that promise with a warranty so that when it failed before those years were up, they paid the majority of the replacement cost for the new unit. So all products will make a promise, right? Every product makes a promise to us. The best quality picture in a TV ever, right? 
or the most reliable mobile network or the world's best cup of coffee or whatever. All products make promises, but are they willing to back up those words? Are they willing to make a guarantee to take an oath that what we say about this product is true, and if you find otherwise, we will give your money back. We will replace it. We'll make it right somehow. And the point of that, that guarantee, really, that oath, is to convince you to trust the product, to believe the promise that the advertisers make. And, and that matters not just in terms of, you know, how am I going to spend my money, Sometimes it matters because it's a decision of whether or not to trust your life to that product. You know, when you're shopping not for a TV or a water heater, but for brakes or for a carabiner for rock climbing or a parachute or something like that, that that if their promise fails, it's goodbye, you know. And, And so to convince you of the utter certainty of the promise Many companies will back that up with an oath, a guarantee. Well, in our passage this morning, God does something very similar. Not because his promises are unreliable, but because he wants to convince his people of the utter certainty of his promise. And so he backs the promise up with an oath. Promises that he's been calling his children to trust in and cling to throughout this book so far, specifically the promise we just sang about, our eternal inheritance in Christ. And so the major aim of this book so far, we're approaching the halfway point, we're maybe right at halfway. Uh, The major aim of Hebrews that we've seen week after week is to urge and to encourage God's people to finish well to persevere in faith, to not give up, to hold fast to the gospel of Christ all the way to the end, uh, to inherit that promise. And the note that we left off on a couple of weeks ago from chapter 6, verse 12, was this same note of hold fast to the promise. The author was telling his readers not to be sluggish or lazy, but to to seek to have full assurance of their hope until the end so that they might be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And this was an urgent message for uh, the church that received this letter because there was a lot of pressure to let go of those promises. There was a lot of pressure to kind of go back to Judaism, go back to the old covenant as though Jesus hadn't arrived or that he wasn't the Messiah, that you're going to find life a lot easier if you just kind of uh, go back to that organized religious structure of Judaism and pretend that Jesus wasn't even here. That was the temptation that they were facing. And so there was this urgency in holding fast to the gospel and not letting go. And we have we face the same urgency uh, that we find as we read these words 2,000 years later. And it might not be the same pre- pressure. You know, I'm not sure that how many of us are being pressured to revert to Judaism. I know that some of us who have a Jewish background might face that very pressure, but many of us don't have a Jewish background, so that's not exactly the temptation or the pressure we face in our world. Uh, but that doesn't mean we don't face pressure to 
pry our hands from the grip of the gospel, to let go of Jesus and take hold of something else. Sometimes it's ridicule for our faith. You know, you're, you're just kind of stupid for believing that stuff. Nobody believes that anymore. It's outdated. It's foolish, superstitious. Sometimes it's the draw of this world around us with all of its glittery promises. The, the, the lure that, that the satisfaction we want is so much more immediate and close if we will just take hold of it from the world rather than waiting for the end. So there's this draw that we sometimes face. Sometimes it's the simple fact that walking with Jesus is hard. It's hard, and we don't always do a good job, and so we're tired. We're, we're, sometimes we're lazy. We don't want to work that hard, and so there's this, this temptation to give in, uh, to let go. It would be so much easier if I could just go with the grain of this world instead of always fighting against it. You just always feel like I'm the weird one out. And sometimes the pressure we feel is that despite all of our efforts, all of our perseverance to to really be serious and take hold of the gospel, we feel like we're doing everything God's calling us to do. And sometimes that pressure comes because we don't feel like he's keeping up his end of the deal. My prayers continue to go unanswered. I'm, I'm showing up, I'm reading, I'm praying my guts out and nothing seems to be happening. My, my life falls apart anyway. Our, our, our prayers go unanswered. Our loved ones walk astray. Our worst nightmares come true. God promises life and we feel death in our bones. He promises peace. And our troubled hearts just keep us awake night after night. He promises to be with us, and we feel desperately alone. And so, can we really trust God to keep those promises? Can we really trust Him to keep those promises? That's an honest question. That's an honest question that many of us have asked. Some of us are asking, and all of us will ask at some point. Can we trust God to keep his promises? And, and so God, in his compassion, meets us where we are to bolster our faith in his promises by giving us, in this passage, a double assurance. A double assurance. Two unchangeable things to help me take serious the credibility, the trustworthiness, the reliability of his promises Two unchangeable things. His promise backed up with an oath. Because even though we don't always feel it, and even though we sometimes feel pulled towards something else, God's promises in Christ are secure. Such that in them we have a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. And so how does he convince us of this? How does he convince us of this? In our text, the first thing he does is he starts with an example in verses 13 to 15. The power of God's promise in the example of Abraham. So, once again, as he's done so many times in Hebrews, the author takes us back to the Old Testament. He takes us back to the Old Testament, this time to the story of Abraham in Genesis 22. Now, if you are familiar with the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis, uh, you'll remember how it started in chapter 12 with, with God calling Abraham to leave his, 
his country, and his family, and to go to this land God was going to show him because God made a promise to him. A promise to make him into a great nation, to bless him, and to make his name great, and to bless all families of the earth through him. That was God's promise, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now, what was remarkable about receiving that kind of promise from the Lord at that moment was that Abraham was already 75 years old, and his wife, uh, Sarah, was barren. She couldn't have children. So God promised to make this man into a great nation to have descendants more numerous than he could ever count. And he was already, you know, 75, no kids and no chance of kids. That's a pretty wild promise. And so much of the story of Abraham in Genesis was him and his wife, Sarah, waiting on God to fulfill this promise. And there was all sorts of crazy twists and turns as they waited. But then finally, nine chapters and 25 years later, at the ripe age of 100, Abraham receives his son Isaac. God keeps his promise. This son Isaac, through whom that promise would go forward. And you're like, yes, sweet, we made it, right? And then you turn the page to Genesis 22. Where God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. What in the world is that? I mean, why would God promise so much through Isaac and then just as soon as he's there, it feels like, just take him away? What's going on? Well, we were, were told in, in Genesis 22, 1 that, that this is a test. God never actually meant for Abraham to sacrifice his son. He was testing Abraham's faith. And Abraham passed that test. Listen to what he says to the young men who accompanied him and Isaac to the mountain. So he and Isaac got ready. They, they went to the, man, to, the, to the land of Moriah, to the mountain. They had a couple of young men helping them with their journey, Abraham says to those young men when they arrive, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Think about what Abraham says to those young men. We're going to go worship. What's that mean? That means sacrificing Isaac. And then we're going to come back to you. Is he just trying to kind of cover himself so the young men don't tackle him before he goes and does this crazy thing? Or does he really believe that when I'm faced with two irreconcilable, seemingly irreconcilable truths from God, that God is going to bless all nations through this son Isaac, making him into a great nation, and God wants me to sacrifice this son Isaac, if both of those things are true, then God must be planning to raise him from the dead. That's all I can figure out. And that's exactly what Hebrews tells us Abraham concluded, that he considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead. That was the level of Abraham's faith. He wasn't making up a story. He meant it when he said, we're going to go worship and we're going to come back to you. He believed God's promises. 
And so he demonstrated incredible faith in the promises of God. And God's response in that story to his faith was to reiterate the promise he'd already made to him several times. But then, this time, to seal that promise with an oath, a guarantee. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens and the sand on the seashore. As the author of Hebrews explains, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So Abraham's story is an example of the power of God's promise. God said it and he did it. And Abraham's the kind of person that the author of Hebrews wants us to imitate. One who, through faith and patience, obtained the promise. Verse 12, he held fast to God's word even when it didn't make sense and even when it took decades to come true. We're called to imitate that kind of faith as we hold fast to Christ. But what's interesting in our passage is that as the author begins to then apply the example of Abraham to us, so here's Abraham, phenomenal example, you know, trusted the Lord and his promises, the promise that God swore by oath, rather than elaborating on Abraham, uh, rather than uh, focusing on Abraham's faith and continuing to kind of show us what that was like so we can follow that example. Instead, the overwhelming attention of verses 16 to 20 is on the certainty of the promises that Abraham believed more so than his example of faith. That's interesting. You know, here's the example, but what I'm going to give my attention to is not the man who trusted the promise, but the certainty of the promises he trusted. Because that's how we follow his example, is being convinced in the same way of the certainty of God's promises. The call here, in other words, is not so much to ratchet up our faith. You need to just try a lot harder to believe like Abraham did. Rather, this is a call to reckon with the certainty of God's promise and to be convinced, to let God convince you that he will do what he says. That's the emphasis as as the passage unfolds. And that's what we find in verses 16 to 18. So he starts in verse 16 by explaining how an oath typically works uh, between people. God made a promise and he sealed it with an oath. What's the whole deal about oaths? Why do people do that? Well, it's because people don't always keep their word. Uh, Humans are not always truthful. I think most of us have learned that by now. And so one way to assure the truthfulness of your word when you're making a promise to someone is to take an oath or to swear by something greater than yourself. It's the money-back guarantee of the ancient world. Or, or if you think of our modern court context, you, when you swear and take an oath, what you say under oath has repercussions if you lie. There's legal consequences 
for breaking it. And so it's, it gives you this added level of surety that someone's actually telling the truth. And the greater the thing you swore by, the more serious you were about your promise. Such that to swear by God, especially in the ancient world where there was people generally feared God, that, was, that served to end an argument. If you're going to invoke God into your promise and you really believe God will strike you down if you lie, it's a pretty good guarantee that you're telling the truth. And, and so that's what people did. Now, of course, when God takes an oath, there's nothing greater for him to swear by, right? He's the greatest thing that there is. And so, so if God takes an oath, the only thing he can swear by is himself. And so whereas the people in the Old Testament would say something like, as surely as the Lord lives, dot, 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 the way God would do it is, as I live, dot, dot, dot. He swears by himself. Uh, nor does he technically need to swear. You know, it's, it's, it's not as though the reliability of his promise is ever in question. Uh, his promise is fully reliable. Verse 18 tells us it's impossible for God to lie. So, so it's not that God needs to seal his oath with a promise. His promise is good whether or not he swears an oath uh, to it. But as an accommodation, as a compassion with Abraham, for instance, God meets us where we are, often in our wavering faith, with a double assurance, with two unchangeable things, a promise sealed with an oath. God doesn't just want us to try harder to believe. He wants to actually convince us to believe. That his word is 100% reliable. As, as verse 17 puts it, he wants to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise. That is, not just to Abraham, but to those who inherit the promises to Abraham, which is not just ancient Israel. That's us. That's the people he's writing to. That's those who have sought refuge in Christ. He wants to show them more convincingly the unchangeable character of his purpose. That when God says it, when God plans it, he will not change. And so he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, not just a promise, but an oath and a promise, in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We might take God's promise in Christ seriously and hold tight to it all the way to the end. He wants to convince us that his plan is sure, that our hope is secure, and so he seals his promise with an oath. So what is that promise, and what is that oath? What's he actually promising and swearing that he will do? That brings us to verses 19 and 20. But that actually points us to the whole of Scripture, because God's promise is unchangeable. It's a plan, a purpose he's been working out from the beginning of time and will carry forward faithfully all the way to the end. And so, so really, it's, it's the whole of Scripture that's brought to bear in this passage. Uh, the promise of God really does go all the way back to Abraham. God's unchangeable purpose was set in motion millennia ago. And, and really, if you read the story of Genesis and you look at God's promises to Abraham, you hear an echo of an even earlier passage. 
that, that what God is promising to Abraham is really what he planned in creation at the very beginning. So that's God's unchangeable purpose, that his vision for the whole earth to be filled with his glory through a children made in his image. That was his purpose. He, he blessed them. He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, that, that God's glory would spread throughout his entire creation. And even when human sin and rebellion sought to, to thwart that purpose, it still remained unchanged because God renewed the purpose through Abraham and his promises, not only to make Abraham into a great nation, but to bless all nations through him, all people groups. It's the same purpose he expressed in creation. And, and it was this promise that ancient Israel looked forward to throughout the entire Old Covenant. It was this promise that Jesus carried in his heart through his ministry on earth. And it's this promise that he fulfilled when he answered the Old Covenant and established God's kingdom through his life, death, and resurrection. It's a promise fulfilled by dealing with our sin, that, that early problem, and by what, making a way for all nations to become part of God's family. Not just ancient Israel, all nations. Listen to Galatians 3.29. It says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So the promises of God are fulfilled not just through whatever genealogical bloodline we might have. Ultimately, the promises of God are fulfilled through faith in Jesus. And so if God kept his promise to Abraham by sending his son Jesus to deal with sin and bless all nations and expand the family of God, will he not also keep his promise to carry us safely home to give us that eternal inheritance? Abraham had a promise. We have a better promise. Because our promise rests not only in what Abraham looked forward to, it rests in the fact that God has already begun to fulfill it in Christ. We have evidence of that. And if God were only to have given his promise, that would have been enough. That would have been utterly sufficient for his plan. That, should have, that would have been good enough for his people. He doesn't need to say more than what he says because his word is always secure. But and in his compassion for us and in his desire to convince us, he adds to that promise his oath. He seals it with an oath. And specifically, in the author of Hebrews' mind, it's an oath that secures Christ's perpetual and eternal priesthood. Verses 19 to 20, when he talks about this promise in that oath, verses 19 and 20 focus on Christ's priestly role. So there's lots of layers to the way Christ is a savior. He's a king. He's a friend, right? He's the temple where God dwells. He's also our great high priest. And that's the role that verses 19 and 20 focus on. And that priesthood is based on an oath that God swore to David's son clear back in Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God swore that David's son, the king, would also be a priest. And, and so all of a sudden, at the end of chapter 6, we're coming back to a topic that the author of Hebrews introduced at the end of chapter 5. 
when he was last talking about Jesus being this priest, and he mentioned this guy, Melchizedek. Gesundheit, you know, you say that name, and you're like, what? Uh, Melchizedek, you were a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And when he introduced Melchizedek at the end of chapter 5, it's about three weeks ago we looked at this, you'll remember, he wanted to elaborate and then he stopped because he realized he needed to warn his readers to wake up first, that they were sluggish, that they were dull in their faith, they were being spiritually lazy, and he didn't feel that they had the capacity to go there and, and, and wrestle deeply with Christ's identity as this priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so we had that warning passage we looked at two weeks ago to wake up. Well, he's, he's coming back to that. He had started to go there. He's going to go there in chapter 7. The whole chapter is about this priesthood. And, and as he begins to go there, he's already preparing us for the fact that this priesthood is anchored in God's oath, that, that the significance of the oath in promising David that his son would not only be a king, but an eternal priest, as he, as he says in chapter 7, uh, verse 20, that this priesthood of, of Jesus after the order of Melchizedek was established, quote, not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, and, but this one was made a priest with an oath. By the one who said to him, the Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, that's complicated, which is why he wants to unpack it, which is why we'll look at that next week in chapter 7. We'll begin to kind of walk through what in the world is he saying and why does it matter? Why can't Jesus just be a priest like every other priest after Aaron? Why does he have to be this other guy? We'll get there. But one of the things that's significant about that is that God swore an oath to David's son that Jesus would be that kind of priest, a better kind of priest. And so God's promise, his purposes hang not just on his promise, but also on his oath. Not just that he's going to redeem a people for himself through Christ and bring them into his eternal kingdom, but an oath that makes that promise possible, appointing Jesus as our eternal heavenly priest. And so he says in 619, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus is gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Through Jesus, our Hope is anchored in heaven itself. As one author puts it, our hope, based on his promises, is our spiritual anchor. It is moored to an immovable object. If you want to secure your boat, you're going to not just drop your anchor in a bunch of weeds that could be pulled out. You're going to want to hook it on some sort of rock outcropping that that isn't going anywhere our hope is anchored to an immovable object and that immovable object is the throne of god itself that's what our hope is tied to so whatever this world does to god's people on earth is ultimately of no consequence to our security to the security of our inheritance in heaven that doesn't mean 
It doesn't matter or it doesn't hurt or that we shouldn't do something about it. But there's nothing on earth that can make you less secure of your inheritance in heaven. Nothing that this world can offer that compares to that. You could lose your friends for your faith. That might happen. You could lose your reputation for your faith. You could lose your sleep waiting on God to act and keep his promises. You can lose your job for your faith, but you cannot lose your place in God's kingdom. Not if Jesus is your savior, not if Jesus is your hope, because his anchor is connected to the very throne of God and no one's going to move that thing. And because Jesus is our forerunner, that's, that's what he tells us in, in verses 19 and 20. That's that picture of Jesus has gone ahead of us on our behalf to secure our place. And, and if Jesus has done that, it's secure. It's not like saving seats for your friends at the movie theater where you, you, know, you drape your coat over two or three seats and then you go get your popcorn and you come back and someone's moved your coat. You lost your place. That isn't going to happen. When Jesus is our forerunner, securing our place in heaven, nobody's going to remove that coat. As chapter 7 puts it, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Because he's not just saving our seat, he's pleading our case. He's our advocate, our eternal high priest before his father. And so that's the level at which God wants to convince us that if I say I'm going to bring you safely home, that Christ is sufficient. Hold fast to him and don't let go all the way to the end. I'm going to keep my word. If that's what he's trying to convince us of, both with a promise and an oath, what do we do with that then? What do we do with that when our hearts are breaking, when our world is, is caving in on us, when we're just tired, we don't even know if I can put one foot in front of the other? What do we do? The author tells us what our response ought to be in verses 18 and 19. That God has given us this double assurance. He's sought to overwhelmingly convince us of the truth of his word so that we who have fled to him for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Hold fast to the hope set before us. That's our response, to grab hold of Christ and never let go, no matter what. So when you're tempted to lose patience with God, it's tired of waiting, remember that his promises are unchangeable. He didn't say something and then go back and reconsider it. Oh, I didn't think that one through. His purposes are unchangeable. What he planned, he will accomplish even if it's not on our timetable. When you're brought to a place of honest doubt, this is not what I signed up for. Am I wasting my time? Is this all just a big hoax and everybody else is in on the joke and I'm, I'm, I'm the laugh? Remember that it is impossible for God to lie. It is impossible for God to lie. And that he's already shown his faithfulness in the cross. 
If God is willing to keep a promise that cost him his own son, if Christ has already paid the price for our eternal inheritance, will he not keep his word to bring us safely home? I mean, if, if you were to put $25,000 down on a car, you're not going to forget about it at the dealer. You already paid for it. You're not going to forget to go pick it up. What Christ shed was infinitely more valuable than that. The Lord will not leave us on the lot waiting forever. He will be faithful to keep his word. And so when you're ready to give in or give up or let go, remember that in Christ we have an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. This world falls apart in so many painful ways. It doesn't work the way it's supposed to. And some of us uh, watch that from a distance on TV, and some of us are living it right now. And we have an inheritance that is utterly unlike that. It's untouchable from what we go through. The, the sin and the rot that just eats away at us, it is untouchable and it is waiting. It is waiting. It is kept safe for us who are being guarded by faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. God will bring us home. And there's no substitute on earth that can, pay, that can compare in the meantime and nothing that this world offers that, that can truly last or satisfy or take the place of that inheritance. There's no greater treasure than Christ. So when you feel alone or abandoned, remember that Christ, your forerunner, has already gone before you to save your place. He didn't forget about you. He's, he's there. When you're overcome with guilt and shame and you feel like you've blown it one too many times, remember that Christ, your high priest, is at the Father's side right now pleading His blood for you. And it is sufficient. It is enough. There's no sin on this world in your life, there's no sin you've committed, there's no sin committed against you that isn't able to be fully covered by the blood of Christ. Our priest is good at his job. He is enough. When you feel as though God has forgotten you, remember that your name is graven on the palm of his hand. If you've ever had to remind yourself of something, but you didn't have a piece of paper, and so you just write the note on the back of your hand. That's what I used to do all the time before I had a smartphone. I mean, when you write that note on your hand, you do it for a reason, because you know you're going to see it. You know you're going to see it. Your name is graven on the palm of God's hand. He's not going to forget you. He's not. That's the hope we have. 
anchored to the very throne of God. God's promises in Christ are secure. They are a steadfast anchor for our souls. And so, am I convinced? Am I convinced of that? Am I willing to put the full weight of my hope in Christ and to hold tight all the way to the end, not by just trying harder to believe more, but by reckoning with the utter certainty of the promises of God. He will keep his word. His purposes are unchangeable. And that is the hope that we have in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, how we need your word this morning. Lord, how we need to hear your promises every single day. God, thank you that they're true. Thank you that they're good. Thank you that Christ is our sufficient Savior and King that he is faithful to hold us now and he will be faithful to make right everything that's wrong in this world in the end. So may we hold fast and may we walk faithfully. May we walk faithfully clinging to our great high priest and living holy lives, not in order to be accepted by you, but because we are secure in Christ through faith. Lord, may that be true among us. May we have a hope that anchors us to your throne, and may that hope produce fruit in our lives, in this church, in our personal lives. May we follow you all the way to the end. In Jesus' name, amen.